Hello and welcome to Wrestling at Random. I'm Jeremy Deemer. And I am Adam Summers. This is a podcast where every week we review a classic pro wrestling event from a streaming service. That classic pro wrestling event could be a pay-per-view, a major television special, a territory era arena event, or in this case, a non-pay-per-view direct-to-home video supercard from ECW as they're on the verge of going from being Eastern to extreme. Every single week we fire up the randomizer and that's the machine that picks what show from a streaming service we're going to see. It's completely at random and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. In this case, super interesting, really fascinating. This is a show I had not seen and you can find out what show we're going to review every single week by following us on social media. Every Thursday we post on our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, what show we're going to be reviewing that week. So make sure you're following us at Wrestle at Random on Twitter and Instagram. That's the best way to interact with the show is via Twitter. You can also find us Facebook.com slash Wrestling at Random. And make sure to shoot us a, a message on Twitter. We are always uh, happy and interested and it's fun to engage with people as they listen to the show and sometimes go back and and watch the show that we're reviewing and uh, it's it's always interesting to see what people's thoughts are and if their their takes on the shows line up with ours or if they got something completely different out of it and it doesn't even have to be this week's show tell us what you think of uh, any show in the back catalog that yeah entire... which is it's bursting at the seams with what over 20 episodes in the back catalog as Absolute. we record this one Absolutely. All of them available free of charge at wrestlingatrandom.com or anywhere. One other quick note, podcast. Jeremy, that I just want to throw in there is that if uh, if you like listening to classic wrestling podcasts, you're hearing about classic wrestling, but you are sometimes uh, you find it daunting the length of shows that are out there. Do not worry with ours. We uh, we try to keep it to an hour to an hour and a half most often it's probably right around that hour and 15 hour and 20 range so easily digestible for your commute if you still have one of those uh if you're working you want to listen to it on your lunch break or just driving around running errands uh, that's treadmill part of time we always want to yeah be there for you on, on on your hour treadmill or workout as well so absolutely just walk around the neighborhood and hear us talk <laughs> about random good or terrible pro wrestling and just cackle and wonder you know have people in your neighborhood wondering what the heck you're listening to and oftentimes you're going to run home and fire up one of these matches that we talked about here yes <laughs> so let's take you back you mentioned this is a uh, a super show from ecw eastern championship wrestling soon to be extreme championship wrestling this is their hostile city showdown show from june 24th 1994 in 1994, wrestling had endured years of negative publicity from WWF's steroid trial. The business decline started for all U.S. companies in about 1992, and it continued into 1994. While Vince McMahon was on trial for steroid distribution, WCW had just signed Hulk Hogan and were hoping to turn their business around. While WWF and WCW were rebuilding... ECW was being born. ECW at this time was still Eastern Championship Wrestling. They were trying to put out a product that was different. It was hardcore wrestling. And they would eventually become Extreme Championship Wrestling and expand nationwide, including debuting on pay-per-view in 1997. But at this point, 
1994, ECW had to rely on videotape sales and trading. And the magazine publications covering them as well. Yes, that was, uh, I guess you wouldn't say word of mouth, but that was not actually seeing the shows. That was my introduction to ECW right around this time period in 1994 was seeing uh, in, you know, Inside Wrestling, PWI, the after mags, they were all over ECW as something different. And you would see these, these pictures of these crazy, crazy things that were happening. You'd read these articles and you were, you were desperate to see these shows. But living in the Midwest, there was pretty much no way to do that. This show drew 1,390 fans to the ECW Arena, a wrestling arena slash bingo hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We open with a graphic and the voice of Joey Styles welcoming us to a great night of Eastern Championship Wrestling from the ECW Arena in Philadelphia. And this is Joey Styles as he was at that time period through the majority of ECW, actually, calling this show by himself, uh, providing play-by-play and color commentary all in one. And of the three shows that we've done, I believe three shows for uh, we've reviewed of ECW, I thought this was by far the best Joey Styles was uh, on any of the, these three shows was on this night. Yeah, and if you think back to the commentating teams of 1994, absolutely, Joey Styles was... Uh, unique and he was uh, absolutely refreshing after hearing you know Jim Ross is still the best in the business but Joey Styles was uh, an up-and-comer and and someone who you know we would look forward to hearing call play-by-play for many years to come and and this was a great showcase for his talent well it was also it was a, a much more confrontational style which was driven I'm sure by Paulie but a much more confrontational style of announcing than you would see in the other promotions. And it was really, it was indicative and illustrative of what ECW was at that time and really continued to be throughout its, its run. But at this time was that they were attempting to carve their niche out of what they're going to be. And so throughout the show, you have Joey Styles talking about how, you know, we, we don't, uh, everybody that's here at this, this sold out show actually paid and, you know, taking shots at Atlanta and taking shots at Stanford, but because it's so early on in ECW's run, and really it's it's pre-CW, I mean, this is, like you said, this is a couple months before they officially go extreme in name at least, but this is them carving their, their spot out and doing everything they can to show you that they are different from the, the other promotions. And it just, it feels more authentic and less try-hard than the later shows which we've reviewed on earlier editions of this podcast. We get a graphic for Tommy Dreamer versus Hack Myers. And let's take time out for a quick fashion corner on Hack Myers. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. We'll bury the lead and go with Hack Myers first. Yes. Uh, Hack Myers, uh, he's wearing, it's hard to tell whether it's, I guess you never really know in the early to mid 90s where Zubaz begin and pajama pants end. <laughs> these these are somewhere- total Zubaz pants. Absolutely. He's somewhere on that uh, that continuum for sure. He's got a singlet under uh, tucked into his uh, his Zubaz slash pajamas. He has a haircut that actually would look much more in place for modern day indie wrestling than it would have in 1994. He's a big man. He's not a particularly well built man, but he's not he's not like 
out of shape. He's not, you know, he's not huge. He's not obese. His opponent. Wait, is wait, man... wait. You just okay. glossed over the leather biker vest and leather biker hat that he also yes. had on. That's, yeah, <laughs> like village people-esque yeah. with his uh, <laughs> uh, outfit here. Yeah, so... Then Tommy Dreamer comes out and 22 year old Tommy Dreamer, who Joey Siles at times uh, refers to him as a a complete pure athlete. Yes, he's a candidate for the NWA rookie of the year, we're told. And he's got he's got his flashy ring jacket on. And he's looking like every he to, to me the best way you can describe him is he looks like the lost member of the Fantastics. <laughs> it was very flashy, but he takes this jacket off, and the dude is in phenomenal shape. I have oh, the never best shape seen Tommy Dreamer has ever been in. I've never seen this jacked version of Dreamer before. Absolutely, jacked may be a bit strong. No, but no, he was he, not. He had muscle definition, which I've never seen in Tommy Dreamer. Uh, this was pretty impressive. Yes, by Tommy Dreamer standards, physically, he looked great. Uh, and just full disclosure, Tommy Dreamer, as time went by and when we actually got ECW in Chicago and I was able to watch that on a regular basis, Tommy Dreamer was by far my favorite ECW wrestler. So I'm not knocking him here. I'm just saying, I, I don't know that I would say jacked, considering <laughs> especially some of the recent uh, late 80s, early 90s WWF shows that we've, we've reviewed here where everyone was jacked to the gills and then some. That's fair. But not only on is a Tommy Dreamer scale. Absolutely. He is in the best shape of his career, undoubtedly. And what this man is wearing, if we're used to Tommy Dreamer coming out wearing the like the black pants and the you know the black ECW t-shirt, that is not Tommy Dreamer here. He is wearing he's wearing long black tights, but they are tights. He is wearing suspenders and he has purple trim on the top of his trunks. Uh, Joey Styles refers to him as uh, a pretty boy that had to win over the ECW hardcore fans, and it's it's interesting because Joey Styles refers to Tommy Dreamer throughout this match as though he's already won over the hardcore fans. But as you watch <laughs> this match and you hear the crowd just just absolutely, they're just all over Dreamer, uh, it would be a little while yet before the, the transformation of Tommy Dreamer from pretty boy to hardcore icon ends up happening. No, and it he, does not happen in this match. It does not. And he even tried at the beginning of the match to win them over by grabbing a New York Rangers jersey and stomping on it to get the Philly fans behind him. And they did appreciate that gesture, but they were quickly uh, not behind the pretty boy, Tommy That is true, although I don't think that ring announcer Bob Ortiz, who's great and such a perfect hit for ECW, but I don't think he did Tommy Dreamer any favors when he introduced him as being from, quote, Dreamland USA. (laughs) It's a quick start by Dreamer. Myers tries to go to the top, and the big man slammed off by Dreamer. People, again, like we mentioned, are not behind Dreamer here. And we get a let's go hack chant and a Dreamer sucks chant. Dreamer tries to backdrop Myers again, but Hack throws him down by the hair. That was awesome. That was one of those little moves that I love where instead of the usual, you set for a back body trap, the guy bouncing off the rope will just, you know, usually kick the guy in the chest if he's going to counter. Here, he just runs towards Dreamer as Dreamer's doubled over, grabs him by the hair, and throws him back first to the mat. I love that. We hear Joey Styles sarcastically say, This could be the beginning of Hackamania. <laughs> 
we also have uh, at one point Joyous Siles refers to Tommy Dreamer and says he quote wrestles like a junior heavyweight. <laughs> I love Tommy Dreamer. I thought he was <laughs> fine in this match. Totally. He, but I would not say that the man wrestled like a junior heavyweight. Although, I mean, I guess it, I mean not quite as technically sound, but maybe more like a Norio Hinago junior heavyweight from our first uh, New Japan show that we reviewed, <laughs> rather than like a a Jushin Liger or a great Sasuke type of junior heavyweight, if we're talking stylistically. Dreamer's down. His head and neck are across the bottom rope. Myers on the apron, drops a leg across the back of Dreamer's head. The old Undertaker spot. The old Undertaker spot, yeah. Which he then follows up with a move that I feel like we've seen many uh, Undertaker uh, monster of the month sort of uh, opponents do. They put him in a ner- or, uh, hack put him in a nerve hold here in 1994 in the ECW arena. Yeah, Did not expect to see that move. No, and the fans were not uh, cheering Dreamer to, <laughs> to no, fight out. They of were not hold. willing him to uh, for his nerves to recover here and get to his feet. Dreamer kicks Hackmeyer's low. The ref didn't see it. DDT by Dreamer. This was not his finisher yet. I feel. The, the people only like Hack because they hate Dreamer so much. Yes, but Hack Myers was also, he was one of those early ECW cult favorites. Uh, I think it was certainly accentuated by their, their disdain for Tommy, but he was one of those guys that they just kind of decided they were going to cheer for. And truth be told, he I expected him to be much worse in this match than he was. He was perfectly acceptable. He totally was, yeah. As an opponent for 22-year-old Tommy Dreamer in an opening match. Hell, he took the, uh, the Bret Hart buckle bump. That that was this led to the finish. Dreamer sends Myers into the buckle, chest first, takes the Bret Hart bump. Dreamer to the top rope, splash off the top, gets the three count. Your winner, Tommy Dreamer. Yes, my notes are: Tommy hits flailing top rope splash that was supposed to be a frog splash. Tommy was so miscast as a technical babyface. Hundred percent. We get a graphic for Chad Austin versus Don E. Allen. A graphic. For these two men and talk about a fashion report. Uh, I don't think we've seen two men matched up against each other in the uh, the months of doing this podcast uh, that have looked more like geeks, jobbers, wimpies, whatever you want to call them, than these two men. Donnie Allen comes out. He is the opposite of in shape. He is wearing a blank black singlet but it also might be a t-shirt. I can't really tell due to the, the, the low fidelity of this broadcast, which I'm not knocking. I want ECW to be lo-fi. His opponent, Chad Austin is wearing an orange singlet. <laughs> now, and I am not doing justice to describing no. how bad the gear is on these two men. I have... And I, at this point I am equal parts, not looking forward to this match and looking forward to this almost more than anything we've reviewed on this show. I'm sitting here trying to figure out who either of these guys are. I have no idea. And I remember again, I remember the, so these are names. Like when you were following promotions back in the day, uh, strictly via magazine, there would be names such as Don E. Allen, who you would never see pictures of, but you would always see the results of when you were reading the, the results of shows. And so you had in your head, what these men looked like. So it was always really strange when you finally saw a picture or you finally saw a video, did they live up or down to what your ex- your imagination had them being? During the intros for the match, 
911 hits the ring, stepping over the top rope. He's got Paul E. Dangerously with him. And I immediately thought, oh, Paul E. Dangerously is mad that Don E. Allen is going with the <laughs> E. And he's going to put an end to this. Uh, so Paul E. is directing traffic. 911 choke slams the ref while Allen and Austin are trying to hit him. No effect at all on 911. Let's explain, by the way, the 911 phenomenon. 911 was a guy who wasn't much of a wrestler, but he was big and physically imposing, but in sort of like a more of an old school territory way than like a big muscular way. He looked like a guy who you would not want to cross paths with at 3 a.m. in a dark truck stop. Uh, and that's kind of how he wrestled. If you could call it that he really didn't do matches. The whole thing was like, there would be matches like this where the crowd would just be all over the guys that were wrestling. They would chant nine one one. Then this large man would come out and choke slam everybody in sight and then leave it in some ways is it, it's the template. They then followed years later during Sid vicious's brief run in ECW. Nine one one, like you said, choke slams both Austin and Allen at the same time. Styles informs us that this is the referee that disqualified nine one one in his last month's sh- uh, match during that show. Todd Gordon then comes into the ring. He's the owner and commissioner. Well, yes, he's the owner, and then then we, you know, it's it's the pun on Commissioner Gordon, yeah, like Batman. Batman yeah. so that's why they call him <laughs> Commissioner Gordon as well, winking and nod. But yes, it's the at that time owner of ECW, Todd Gordon, and. He gets choke slammed twice in very, very awkward fashion. Yeah, scary. Yeah. It, th- this this answers the question: What would a choke slam look like if the man getting choke slammed had no idea how to get choke slammed? That's what happens here with Todd Gordon. Like you can tell, he's trying to assist the move, but he has no idea how to help nine one one pick him up. Styles was funny here. He screams, let him sign my paycheck first. (laughs) You then think years later with Paul Lee and it's like, wow, yeah. Little did he know. (laughs) Uh, Dreamer comes out to get the jobbers out of the ring, then goes to help Gordon as 911 attacks him. Dreamer chokeslammed as well. The fans are chanting 911. 911 leaves the ring by jumping over the top rope all the way to the floor. I was surprised by that move. Yes. Well, 911 also, he's in that great line of wrestlers who are tall, but not actually tall enough to step over the top rope. So they have to still, but they still want to appear big. So they try to do it, but it doesn't always work here. He just jumped over, but it's just, he's one of those guys that it's funny to see walk over the top rope. There was also a great line from Joey Styles where he says that Polly dangerously has always been the psycho yuppie, but now he's just a bona fide psychopath. And he looks it. He looks like if Paul E. Dangerously had been on a bender for a week, but was still wearing Polly Dangerously clothes. That is the aesthetic of Paul E. in 1994 in ECW as a manager. I had to look up what happened to 911. And in he, he actually went to WCW in 1996 yes. and 97. Was he Big Al or something? He wrestled under the names Tombstone sledgehammer and big al wow i remember the big al thing i have zero recollection of tombstone and the sledgehammer i have no recollection either (laughs) wow the pit bull with his manager jason versus the tasmaniac in a dog collar match 
in a dog collar match. But as I was watching this, Jeremy, I was thinking of you as this match started to unfold. Because and the I, fact that this is rules? a dog. Well, yeah, the <laughs> rules, quote unquote. Yes. This is a dog collar match, which dog collar matches are contested under the same set of rules as a, a chain match. match, which we've covered on this podcast before a leather strap match. Uh, sort of any match where two men are tethered together by something that that can also be a weapon. The idea being that you have to drag your opponent to each corner consecutively, all four corners, and once you touch the fourth corner uninterrupted, you are victorious. Here we have a couple things. Well, first, well, first let me let me describe the dog collar situation here. So yeah, th- this <laughs> is uh, each man has a collar around his neck and then a long chain connecting the collars. Yes. So. Uh, yeah, I was ready for the normal rules of this match, except that as the match went on, we found out you can also win by pinning the guy, which I was completely not expecting. Well, you uh, can also win by pinning guy. The other thing you can do, though, is you can just walk to each corner and not you don't drag have to the guy. pull a guy. No, you can just walk to the corner. Yes, because it was like I said, it was a long chain. It was too long for this match. Uh, it's a long chain and a small ring. So that is that is an odd combination. However, I do think that this we'll get to one particular spot in this match where I think this is actually why they had at least the pin thing. I have no idea, but why they had the you didn't have to drag your guy across because we got one great, violent, terrifying spot out of that that version of the rules. So the Tasmaniac, you might know as uh, ECW uh, Human Suplex Machine Taz, uh, future. Uh, a wrestler and announcer in WWF and now uh, announcer manager in AEW as well. So uh, that's the same Taz as the Tasmaniac here in early he ECW. Is, he is barefoot. He is wearing caveman gear. I don't recall. I couldn't tell if he had face paint here. I know earlier on in his career in this gimmick, he did have face paint. It's also noteworthy to me because I had forgotten about this and that I went down a little bit of a, a Tasmaniac rabbit hole, at least in terms of just the background of his career. And I had completely forgotten. He did tours of New Japan Pro Wrestling as the Tasmaniac. Hmm. Taz, he runs into the ring and is immediately clotheslined by the chain that's attached to the dog collar. Yes. Well, what, what was going on was that the pit bull and his manager... Jason, a favorite of this podcast, uh, <laughs> I say that facetiously. We're we're whole, each holding ends of the chain, so they clotheslined him with the uh, with the chain as he ran in, and then he gets stomped by the pit bull. The one thing I noticed here was that we're several matches into this show, and then here we finally get a ringside camera shot. Up until this point, I thought it was just going to be a the single hard camera, camera. Yeah. hard cam shoot, and that is one of my frustrations with this show is there are certain points, there are certain matches where we get the ringside camera. There are other matches where we don't get the ringside camera. And for some of the matches where we really needed that additional camera, we don't have it. Pitbull throws Taz over the top to the floor. The chain then forces the Pitbull over the top rope as well. They brawl outside. Taz grabs a chair from a ringside fan and hits Pitbull with it. This is one of the things I loved about ECW that I forgot about. Like they don't get chairs from under the ring. They get chairs from ringside and yeah, they get it from the that, fans. That era and the ECW arena, 
other thing that's noteworthy is that all the fans that you would see in the ECW arena years later, all the noteworthy fans, you know, hat guy, uh, sign guy, uh, Rob Zombie guy, all those guys were here even back in 1994 in their, you know, in their normal customary front row seats. Uh, you know, if you watch shows from the ECW arena on TV, you, you could kind of set your watch by where those guys were going to be standing. Uh, and at this point, like you said, when when chairs are grabbed from the crowd, and they're hitting each other with. And this is when Joey Siles says, you have never seen anything like Eastern Championship Wrestling. I'm telling you this as a fan who has seen everything. And honestly, in 1994, uh, you'd be hard pressed to disagree with Joey Siles here. It was hyperbole, but it was also true. Very true. They fight over the rail into the fans and they are fighting in the front row. Pitbull choking Taz with the chain. Back in the ring, Pitbull touches three corners. Well, before that, can we can we mention that Joey Siles calls this a dream match? <laughs> and his credibility from, from what I just said a minute ago to that just, just plunged in that moment. It, it, it might have been at the time. <laughs> but uh, this is where Pitbull touches the three corners, but he's not actually dragging his opponent to do so. Looks... Very non-impressive uh, or dramatic watching him walk around the ring to each corner. Until. As he, as he goes to the fourth corner, Taz pulls hard on the chain, pulling Pitbull down hard to the ground. This was so brutal. This was, yeah, it was horrific. And it was exactly <laughs> why, like I said, I think that they had it this way. So that there'd be a reason for, for him to be this far away from, from Taz for Taz to be able to pull that. And yet he, he pulls on the chain and the, the angle at which the pit bull's neck turns Ugh. as he goes down to the mat is just horrifying. Taz gets three of the corners, but he's hit with the chain in the back of the head. We also, at this point, I, I'll note that in this match and when we did have ringside camera shots, we get a lot of those MTV style diagonal camera shots that ECW would do at the time to again, try to show they're edgy and different. T-bone suplex by Taz, which we're we're all familiar with. He gets a near fall out of that. Pitbull muscles the Tasmaniac up for a power bomb and hits it. I write dangerous and shaky power bomb, <sighs> uh, and this is also the moment where Joey Styles calls Pitbull quote a complete athlete. <laughs> Pitbull wraps the chain around Taz's neck as they're back to back. So he's holding him, uh, holding the chain. They're back to back. Pitbull starts touching the corners. And every time Pitbull touches a corner, Tasmaniac touches the same corner. So after touching three corners each, Taz hits a suplex and then gets a three count. <laughs> Not I, touching the fourth one. I, you're winner's Tasmaniac, but I'm wildly confused by this. Yes, I, it... it as this is happening, I'm like, this is brilliant. As they go to each each corner, like you said, you described it perfectly. And I'm like, you know, he doesn't even see that Taz is doing it. Taz is clearly going to suplex him and then and touch, touch the, the fourth, fourth corner. That's it. No. Like, it's... it's a perfect finish. But instead, he just goes for the pin. He wins. The match is over. I don't understand it at all. <laughs> then we have uh, Pitbull number two, which answers the question, which I didn't recall because I'm watching this. I'm like, well, there's Pitbull one and Pitbull two. Why are they just calling this, this guy Pitbull? But apparently Pitbull two had been gone for years. He comes in, he attacks Taz. The one thing they do that's cool is they do this weird double team where they do the, like throw the guy off the ropes, 
Pitbull 2 drops down. Pitbull 1 hits a shoulder block while Taz is in the air. And then Taz lands back first on Pitbull 2. Weird, but cool. Yeah, this ends with them hanging Taz over the top, choking him with the chain and the collar. Uh, beat down by the Pitbulls. My other notes here was basically that, like, there's like the Pitbulls were beloved at times in ECW. But if you watch it now, and like you said, we, you know, we watched the, the show from 2000, we watched the show from 1998. If these guys debuted in, in 2000, they would have been just raked over the coals as like an example of the lame, the, the lameness of late stage ECW compared to early ECW. The Bruise Brothers versus the ECW world champion, the franchise Shane Douglas, and his partner, Mr. Hughes. No, it's the Roughneck Mr. Hughes. <laughs> That's right. We heard that 400 times during this show. The Bruise Brothers are Ron and Don Harris. They would go on to be the Disciples of Apocalypse, the DOA in WWE, and creative control in the dying days of WCW. And then in TNA, reveal themselves to be Nazis. So the less we say about the Bruce Brothers, the better. I was uncomfortable watching them here. Uh, it was another another act that I had completely forgotten about. Uh, and it would have been better off that way. But they, they are certainly visually striking when you see them and that they are giant men that are identical twins, you know, with, with huge long hair. And at first glance, they, they seem impressive until you see them wrestle. All four men start brawling immediately. Douglas thrown face first onto a table. And finally, order's restored, and a tag match actually starts. And when this tag match starts, oh boy, we get this, we get this like big heavyweights can move sort of spot between uh, Ron Harris, I believe, and Mr. Hughes. And then Ron Harris manages to mess up, or I guess combine, they're able, they, they collaborate on the worst hip toss I've seen in the history of pro wrestling. And yeah. that at this point, Shane Douglas tags in, and Joey Styles calls him, quote, the wrestler of the 90s. And I just have to note that it's this weird time, uh, like visual presentation-wise for Shane Douglas, because he's he has not gotten bigger like he did as years went by. Not that he was out of shape, but he just was physically bigger. His hair is cut short like we would see in later years, but he is still wearing the tassel boots. He's like half dynamic dude Shane Douglas, half uh, half franchise Shane Douglas here in 1994. It quickly breaks down into a four-way brawl on the outside again. Douglas slams a Harris on the floor, and Joy Styles tells us that Douglas has an open challenge out to WCW World Champion Ric Flair and WWF World Champion Bret Hart. In in '94, it's in, it was incredibly rare, if almost never unheard of, to to mention other promotions. So oh yeah, it just it wasn't done. It wasn't you, done. You, you so Joey Styles it. doing this was was actually extremely edgy for them to do. Well, and Shane Douglas having done that, yeah, it was very edgy, and it was again, it was part of what ECW is doing, very calculated in so many different ways to differentiate themselves and try to show themselves to the the. Uh, the disillusioned wrestling fan here in the early to mid nineties that they were the, the alternative and they were worth your time and money back in the ring. Sloppy offense by the Harris brothers. 
Douglas is able to hit a belly-to-belly suplex on one of the Harrises. Tags At that him. point, Joey Styles says that uh, tells us that Magnum TA taught Shane Douglas the belly-to-belly suplex, which I'm not sure if that's true or not, but let's just go with it. Uh, but Joey says that he thinks Shane Douglas does the belly-to-belly even better than Magnum TA. Mr. Hughes in, but the Bruise Brothers double-team him. The Bruise Brothers on offense, this it, they did not feel intense or hard hitting. I do not like these guys at all. They, they you have... also notice that there was a Harris brother. There was one point where they're on the floor and nothing comes of this, but one of the Harris brothers is, is feverishly like fidgeting with his wrist tape, trying to, I, I assume trying to pull a blade out. Yeah. That's what it looks either like. Either cut himself or help cut one of the other wrestlers, but he is not, he is not find it, but like zero, zero effort to conceal this at all. Like Ric Flair, this was not in no. so many ways. The, the the guys had a good look, like you mentioned. They were big dudes. They had long hair, beards, but their offense was just sloppy, and it was soft. And weak looking. It was soft, absolutely. Which there, there's nothing worse as, as big men that are so intimidating than having you know than having weak offense, and that I think that's an accurate way to describe the Harris brothers here. Chair to the throat, choking Douglas, saved by Mister Hughes. Douglas gets thrown into the crowd. Well, in the ring, we get a sidewalk slam by Mr. Hughes. The ref is outside with a Harris and Douglas. Allows Don Harris to... He, he lightly kicks Hughes in the back. Puts Ron on top. The ref takes forever to get back in. Finally counts the three. This finish was horrible. Yes, and it was befitting of this match. The which finish was, was a horrible. light kick to Mr. Hughes in the back. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah. It didn't know one any favors. Certainly, uh, the Harrises didn't look good here doing this, but it, it certainly did not make Mr. Hughes look like a threat here in ECW, no. getting uh, with that, that light feather touch and getting put out. Joey Siles then says, and I quote, hardcore tag team wrestling at its best. I disagree heartily. No, no this, finish uh, this was, was horrible. terrible. This match, match sucked. Was... We then get Mr. Hughes on the mic, which Mr. Hughes is. He, he's not a terrible wrestler. He's a big man who can move. He has a great look. But if you were going to do a pro and con uh, chart for Mr. Hughes, the the promo ability would definitely go in the con column. No, this promo was terrible. This was horrible. It was hideous. He just <laughs> keeps saying that like he, that they, he won the match. He wants a ref. He keeps saying the Harris brothers are going down over and over again. And then we also we get Shane Douglas at the end of this thing. I only have one thing to say. Oh yes, what was that a thing? I don't Did know. I miss that? The, the winners I, are the Bruise Brothers. The losers, all of us that had to watch that match. Ugh, accurate. Awful. Iron Man Tommy Cairo with peaches versus the Sandman with woman in a Singapore cane on a pole match. Yes, I there's was very a... excited for this match to start. <laughs> yes, there's a lot to cover here. And this I was excited for this because this I vividly remember reading about this match and seeing pictures of this match in the magazines back in the day. And again, Tommy Cairo is one of those guys that like the way you'd hear him described in PWI, he sounded like such a badass. I mean, it, it didn't necessarily come across when you finally saw him. But I just remember having a feeling like this guy was was just was going to be awesome. Uh, but there's, there's a lot 
to get through as far as the backstory with this we'll match. Get, first, we'll, we have... We'll touch on the backstory in a minute. I want to first touch on the rules. <laughs> so you, The rules, you, such as they were. You win this match by being the first man to take the cane off the pole, and then the added bonus, you can use it any way you see fit. <laughs> yes. So you don't... It's This isn't a... Uh, the weapon is not something that you use to win. You grab the weapon and, and the match win. is over. Basically, rule set wise, this is a ladder match of sorts. There's no ladder, but it's a ladder match of sorts where the prize is on a pole in the corner instead of hanging over the ring. I, it, yeah, it was strange. And then it gets it gets more absurd as, as there are some escapades with the, the very loosely attached pole. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we'll get there. Uh, so Sandman comes out. He lights a cigarette, and I'm not going to lie, teenage me thought that that was super cool to see <laughs> a guy smoking on a wrestling show. Uh, That's so much of what ECW was about, though, was was loved it. Convinced, was appealing to what teenage to early 20s men thought was cool in the mid-90s. 100%. And, uh, and they had their finger on the pulse of it. For better or worse, they did. Yeah, and yeah. this this match is 100% proof of that. Again, for better and worse. <laughs> So Peaches is the real life wife of the Sandman. Yes, Lori Fullington. We would see her in a real name under her real name in ECW years later, reunited with the Sandman. If you recall, there was a show where she was horrifically pile driven through a table oh, off right. the apron by Rhino. And yeah, they uh, they would later get divorced. They actually had three children together. They would get divorced, but one of the children was was actually used as a young child in a Sandman Raven angle. Yes, this is a very famous feud with Sandman and Raven, and and she and her son would both appear as part of it. Yes. Um. So in this match, the Sandman tries to go for the cane right away, but Cairo. Well, before, before we get to that, we have to describe these two men a little bit. Please do. Sandman. <laughs> For those of you that aren't aware, and I, that's probably no one who's listening to this, but this is a younger version of the Sandman looking really no younger than he does today. No, not at all. <laughs> Every bit the beard nut, rocking the Zubaz, rocking the ECW shirt. Um, I did like that he was introduced as being from California. This is a a the last vestiges of Sandman's like surfer gimmick from back in the day. So he's introduced as being from California. Iron Man Tommy Cairo is introduced as being a former Mr. New Jersey. I don't know what that means. He is the best way I can describe him is he is like your classic muscular beer gut guy. He is kind of like a pre Tommy dreamer. He, he looks like the bastard child of Mike awesome and John Zandig. <laughs> he's, he's short, but he projects taller than he is. He is just, I, I don't know. I was just transfixed by everything about the 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 presentation, the overall package of Iron Man Tommy Cairo here. Not to, not don't get me wrong, he wasn't good, no. but he was I was I was enthralled nonetheless. But on the Sandman scale, he was totally fine. On the Sandman scale, he was Bret Hart. <laughs> so Cairo... great. I don't want Sandman to be a good wrestler. No, it was no. so disappointing when he went to ECW and he started becoming, a, or when he went to WCW and started becoming a good wrestler. Yeah, we not great, that. but like passable. I don't want that. No. Cairo with a German suplex dumps Sandman right on his head. Terrifying. Yes. 
Cairo off the top does a forward roll onto Sandman. Flying body attack, Styles calls. Styles calls it, what a maneuver. (laughs) Yes, I thought that was a nice little shot at Vince McMahon as play-by-play. And yes, I also wrote down, Tony Schiavone would have called this a flying body attack. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm staring at that in my notes right now. Hand hand to God. Cairo goes for a cover, and the ref is explaining you can only win by getting the cane. And Cairo so, still wants him to count the pin. I, I don't understand. He was probably watching the last match. <laughs> That's true. He thinks gimmick matches can end with a gimmick or just a pin. I don't blame him. Cairo. Or not whatever. Not the last match. Two matches ago. The dog collar match. Exactly. Yeah. Cairo dumps Sandman out of the ring. And, and he goes through a table on the outside of the ring. Cairo f- follows up with a leg drop to the floor off the apron that couldn't be pleasant at all yes this was like a 7.5 on the johnny the bull scale of (laughs) breaking your ass so this cane is very high up on top of a pole that's attached to the corner of the ring post this this pole (laughs) this pole is is it's about 10 times the height of a of a pool cue but no no bigger or stronger I'm, like, I'm imagine, looking at this. Yeah, I have concerns that neither of these guys will be able to climb this pole to get this this thing. Well, yeah, down. there's no adult human that would be able to climb that pole without it falling, much less these two large men. <laughs> it, yeah, it, not a lot of thought or not the proper type of thought was put into the construction of this stipulation match. Sandman gets control after a few low blows. <laughs> slingshot over the top into a splash by the Sandman. Every time, I know he does that move, and every time I'm surprised by it. <laughs> yes. Sand- well, because it looks like he's surprised by it as well. Like he, <laughs> As he's doing it, he's kind of wondering, what am I doing? Sandman and Cairo battle on the top rope by the pole. We get a superplex by Cairo, and the cane falls off the pole. <laughs> yes. The ref puts the cane in the corner, Be between the turnbuckle pad and and the post instead of climbing up the pole to put it back on there. So now I I feel like someone can actually win this match. Cairo doesn't go for the cane, but Woman sneaks another cane into Sandman who hits Cairo with it. He's caning Cairo. The bell rings. The ref throws the match out as a no decision. Sandman canes Cairo over and over. Sandman then shoves Peaches out of the way. He starts smoking a cigarette again while caning Cairo. Sandman grabs the other cane, tosses it to Woman, and she nails Peaches in the back with it. Yeah, she's behind Peaches, who is who is consoling Tommy Cairo at this point. She does not see Woman behind her, and yes, yeah, she just just clobbers her in the back of that. And these, these canes are, there's not a lot of give on them. These, these are not WCW canes. These are not yeah. Steve Blackman canes. Kendo sticks with a lot of give. That's not what this is. These are Singapore canes. They're not Kendo sticks. That's for <laughs> sure. And so, yeah, you get woman nailing peaches in the back, caning her. And the crowd was super into this. They were, yes. they were going crazy. Sandman with they the were mic. chanting pay your bill 
and I didn't get that at all. I yes. don't know what that the meant. The crowd is chanting, pay your bill, because Sandman with the mic says it's last call, and you need uh, to pay your bill. And I that's see. when the yeah, crowd then starts chanting, pay your bill. Tommy Cairo is bleeding from his arm like he's uh, like he's Wing Canamura and Smoky Mountain <laughs> after going 10 minutes with Kevin Sullivan. Um, and then we, we have Peaches crying face down in the ring very convincingly. And then Tommy Cairo is like, the ultimate dumb jock who doesn't understand emotions. He has no idea how to console peaches. Like he walks no. over to her and he's more like baffled by like what this human emotion is that's being expressed by this woman. And like, he kind of tries to help her, but he really doesn't. And then the refs escort her out and he just kind of stands there looking confused. I love Tommy Cairo. I don't know why he's terrible. He's he, there were no redeeming values here. He did not do the right thing in helping peaches after this match, but he is he is a character he is is tommy cairo his back his back and shoulders were bleeding a lot not just like cuts but he was bleeding there it was uh it was pretty nasty it was rough and now we get to the match that really turned this show around for me at this point ecw tag team champions the public enemy versus the funk brothers in a non-title match we get a video recap showing Paulie dangerously bringing in Bobby Eaton to help Sabu defeat Terry Funk. Arn Anderson makes the save, beating up beautiful Bobby. And let me tell you, watching Arn really makes everyone else I've seen on this show to this <laughs> point feel so amateurish. Yeah, I mean, that dude is such a pro. And well, he's seeing just, him on this show. Wow. He can throw Arn Anderson left hands and DDTs and just the presence and the, the crowd reaction to Arn Anderson coming out. And, and like you have to remember at this time, Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton were firmly entrenched in WCW. The people I would assume at this show had no idea of this sort of tentative short term deal that was in place between ECW and WCW, which we'd also see. Uh, signs of literally and figuratively at the Slambury 94 pay-per-view for WCW in coincidentally Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but people lose their minds first when they see Bobby Eaton. And then when Arn comes out, uh, they're just beside themselves. Yeah. Part of that talent exchange deal was uh, ECW could use Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton, Cactus Jack. And in return, uh, they just had to plug the pay-per-view that you just talked about that was happening in Philadelphia. Which is amazing when you think about it, that WCW, uh, you know, this huge corporation or owned by this huge corporation, this big, you know, multimedia mainstream wrestling promotion was having to rely or felt they had to rely on ECW to help them sell tickets to their pay-per-view in Philadelphia. Paulie Dangerously is doing a promo and he's making fun of Terry Funk's daughters this is amazing and terry walks right up calmly says don't you ever make a remark about my daughters and then begins slapping the crap out of Polly. this was amazing he starts yelling to leave them out of this and paul e is backing down he's absolutely terrified as he should be Th- this was awesome this this was so great Absolutely. It was Terry Funk at his best, which granted, that's a lot of things. You know, we talked about Terry uh, on the last show uh, that we did for this podcast, going back to Clash of the Champions 6, where he was on commentary. Here he is just wild, 
Terry Funk and you just you believe his anger, you believe uh, his rage here. We then cut to Paul E. recruiting public enemy to defend him. Uh, public enemy attacks Terry Funk at the ECW arena uh, after Arn Anderson abandons Terry Funk. Uh, and now we have this match where Terry Funk says the only man he can trust is his brother, the legendary Dory Funk Jr. I have zero clue what the appeal of public enemy was. Why do people like these guys? I, I, I don't get it. I never understood. <laughs> I loved Rocco. I loved Rocco Rock. I'm not gonna lie. I never I understood looked... the I never understood the public enemy as as an act, as as wrestlers. I, I always I think they were don't get it. definitely one of those like had to be there products of of the time and place ECW Philadelphia acts that didn't necessarily translate anywhere near as well when they're in the bright lights of WCW. But I mean, it made for a fun dynamic here with the Funks. Oh, ECW fans love the Funk Brothers like we all do. And when I was, I was worried. I was hoping that they wouldn't, you know, get all over Dory because ECW fans can be pretty rough. They were there 100% no. with Dory here and obviously Terry as well. <laughs> right away, we, we get this crisscross. And a drop down by Dory, who is old, and and then he hits his forearm, and it was super fun. The the fans to be are fair, clearly behind the legends. This is great. To be fair with Dory Funk Jr., Dory Funk always looked old. I went down a rabbit hole a couple months ago of watching every uh, finals of the All Japan Real World Tag League tournament, which for like a decade was the Funk Brothers in the finals against different teams. And it's amazing because you see like these radical changes in the appearance of Terry Funk. He's like short hair, clean cut. Then his hair gets longer. He's got facial hair. His body starts to change. And then you have next to him, Dory Funk, who literally looks exactly the same for a decade. He's got JJ Dillon syndrome where they look old (laughs) all the time forever. (laughs) Pretty much. But Dory looked better than I expected him to here. The one thing I noted was that if, if the public enemy wasn't hitting with a chair, he wasn't selling for them. Correct. Yes. That was the only thing he was going to sell. Anything else he was going to stand there as though he was he was a corpse vertical. All all funks just frustrating the public enemy early, which is fun. Dory with awesome forearms, almost like European uppercut style forearms. Well, yeah, he was the master of that that funk forearm. That was yeah, it, was, it, it wasn't it didn't go up quite as much, but it's it's certainly more yeah of a European uppercut than a traditional North American forearm. And nobody nobody has thrown that better than him. And it was his primary offense in this match. Funk has Johnny Grunge for what looks like a pile driver. Has him in position, but instead muscles him up a little further, and it turns into a power bomb. I thought <laughs> Grunge was going to die. This, yeah, but it, I did too, and I shrieked. But then by the end of this move being executed, it was perfectly safe. So Absolutely. in some ways, it was it was a microcosm for Terry Funk in general, looking uh, to the untrained eye like he's wildly out of control, but actually like the best worker in the business. Funk and Grunge on the outside, chop battle where Funk is demanding grunge chop him more, no-selling all these chops. Funk with a chair to the head of Rocco Rock. Back in the ring, Dory with a chair hitting grunge. Rocco hits Funk with the chair. Dory throws the chair at Rocco, hits him with a forearm as he, as he tried a shoulder block. That was fun. 
Tons of brawling on the outside. At one point while the brawling is going on outside, we have Joey Siles say, great camera work from our crew. At this moment, we can see absolutely nothing. <laughs> right. The, it, it, so, he's yeah, he's Terry, not being sarcastic. No. He's shouting out a particular person in the production truck for the great job they're doing. And at this point, we can tell they're somewhere, like if we're, if we're going from the hard camera out, we can tell they're somewhere on the far right side of the arena and as it's dark, we can sort of see like old school TV snow in the in yeah. the foreground, but we cannot tell that there are men that they're fighting, who they are, or what they're no, doing. No, Terry and Grunge are brawling in the crowd. It's incredibly hard to follow with one camera because the action's all over. Where was this other ringside camera when we yes. needed it? Because yeah, we, don't... we just get the hard camera panning back and forth because they've paired off on two different sides of the outside. Yeah. The only thing I could figure, and I'm sure I'm wrong because I can't imagine they didn't show clips of this on TV, but I was thinking maybe for the matches on the show that they taped for TV, that they had the the, the second camera there, and then for the matches that were just going to be on the home video, they only did the hard cam. I, I'm probably putting too much thought into it. Yeah, but... I thought, I, I my only guess was that the other camera was in position to be ready for the how this the end of this match comes. Yeah. Um, to 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 be closer to the you know underneath the 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 perch uh, in the, yeah. the balcony area there. Or yeah, or yeah, I know you're probably right given the finish. I was going to say the other thing could be that they just tried to get the shots and didn't get anything usable, so they didn't use it. But I think I think your take is probably accurate. Grunge rolled up Dory holding the tights. Dory still kicks out. Grunge is holding Dory on the outside. Rocco with a flip dive over the top wipes out his partner as Dory Funk moved. I was I was like, Dory there's Funk, no way he's taking that move. <laughs> no, and moved is probably a bit uh you're probably giving him a bit Side too much credit. I, I would say he lilted. <laughs> he, he he shimmied would definitely be a bit too much movement. He he evaded in in the nick of time, but not in with particular urgency. Dory is in the mount beating Rocco Rock, just punches to the face. This was awesome. Bloodying him with these open. punches. Yeah. He's busted open. We get the spinning toe hold by Dory. The crowd loving every second of this. Grunge breaks it up. Terry is down in the first row. He's bleeding everywhere. Pauly dangerously and 911 come out to ringside. 911 chokeslams the ref as he's wont to do. Double clothesline. They they cover Dory and Paulie counts three, and Dory covers one of the public enemy and Terry counts three. Well, Terry. we also have this moment right before that where Terry Funk picks up what's described as steps, but to me just looked like a giant bar stool, <laughs> and just drops it right on Rocco Rock's head as Terry's standing in the ring and Rocco's out on the floor. That looked uncomfortable. Terry Funk and Rocco Rock battle all the way up to the balcony area and funk the has, eagle's nest the, as it were the eagle's nest where joey styles is broadcasting from funk has a rope or a cable and he's tied it around rocco's feet and he dumps him off the balcony hanging him upside down by the ankles it's like a bungee cord i think is what the deal was here he's he's, he's hanging him upside down like it's uh I don't know. He's hanging there like it's the scene from Rocky with the meat locker. That's the only thing I could think of, which I guess is apt in Philadelphia. Yeah, he's lowered down all the way down. Then 
Lord describes care. He is tossed. He's tossed. And luckily, the, the, the cable is not long enough that his head uh, would hit the uh, hit the concrete. Terry uh, does throw a, a chair down at him off the eagle's nest, which <laughs> yeah. I thought was hysterical. Um, <laughs> Dory then comes over. He beats him as he's hanging there upside down. And... And we're told, uh, and so so we just see this beating, and then uh, I looked it up at the July event. This was in June, so at the next month, the Funk Brothers would fight Public Enemy in a barbed wire match, and that is the match that's f- the famous clip where tons yes. of chairs get thrown into the ring, filling it up. That actually yes. happened. In Terry the calls for the fans for the fans to throw chairs. There's literally hundreds of chairs get thrown in the ring. And kind of, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about this here with this crazy visual of, of uh, rock a rock being hung by his ankles off the balcony. You think of a lot of other things that ECW did, you know, around like the 94 to 96, 97 time period. And a lot of what they did on these shows was built around crazy singular visuals that would then be either be used and or be used in the magazines to show, oh my God, how crazy ECW is, or they would have a short clip or a still of, you know, something like this or the chairs being thrown in the ring. And that would be the thing that would entice you to buy the home video. So I, I don't think that was by accident. ECW TV title, the television champion, Mikey Whipwreck versus challenger, the rock and rebel again with, friend of the show jason as his manager which i thought it was interesting that jason interesting is probably too strong right i thought it was hilarious that jason you know we've seen in the past jimmy hart being an example on that that russell fest tape where like the announcer or the manager i should say will change their their look their gear to match their their charge jason here he's still wearing the uh the the purple or bluish uh suit jacket pants but he changed to a black suit jacket top. So during the introductions, the Rock and Rebels introduced as the Ayatollah of Rock and Rolla, which <laughs> I knew, you know, I knew that line from Mad Max, but I had only heard Jericho use it in wrestling. So I was yes, uh, surprised to predates, hear Rock and Rebel use it. This predates Jericho using it. And he was also introduced as being from the rock and roll capital of the world, but they don't tell us what city that is. I don't know if that's Dreamland, USA. <laughs> if, if, if he and Tommy Dreamer are actually, you know, neighbors. Uh, Mikey Whipwreck here, he is, so the whole gimmick, literally his music, which we get a dubbed fake version of, his music was, was it Loser Baby, the Beck song? His gimmick was that he was a geek jobber who could take a ton of punishment and had literally never gotten a single offensive move in in his career and yet had become the ECW television champion. He is wearing terrible gear. He's got these dirty white knee pads, uh, this huge oversized Dungeons and Dragons looking shirt. He is, uh, they, they went all in on Mikey Whipwreck, look, making him look like a total loser. And yeah, he won the TV, loser. He won the TV title from the Pit Bull due to interference by the Tasmaniac. So, yes. like you mentioned, uh, he keeps. So he's a total jobber. He keeps defending his title because his opponents get themselves disqualified. That's the only way he he's able to hang on to this title. He's a much more believable version of this character, this act, than the perfect event was at Bash of the Beach 2000. Remember oh that? Oh, I That do. was basically their gimmick as tag team champions, even though they were like bigger and more jacked than everybody else in the company. This, this is much more believable here with tiny, 
uh, pathetic looking Mikey Whipwreck. I pulled up Rebel on Wikipedia because I didn't remember him at all. And oh God! Only really, he was only really did indie promotions after ECW. And he then... was the guy. Uh, we were talking about this off air. He was the guy that had the license to be able to run in Philadelphia. So a lot of times, uh, companies, I believe, even Ring of Honor for quite a while in Philadelphia, they would book him on the show. Like he would have the match right right after the intermission, the popcorn match. Uh, just so they could have him on the show so they could get the license to be able to run. Yeah, sad note. 2018, shot and killed his wife before committing suicide and shooting himself. So tragic ending for the Rock and Rebel. So this match starts with Rebel immediately attacking Mikey. He pulls Mikey's own shirt over his head, like uh, the hockey fight style. This was Philadelphia Flyers all the way. Yeah. And here is where I first see just how tiny Whipwreck is. Holy cow, he is extremely tiny. Lots of chops by Rebel. His chest is bright red early. A pile driver by Rebel doesn't cover him. Hits a big spine buster off the ropes. Uh, no cover again. Uh, and then goes for a side slam off the ropes. And instead of going for the pin, he gets into it, jawing with the fans. Mikey shot in, ducks a clothesline. But Jason trips him from the outside. Jason's on the apron. Whipwreck nails Jason, knocking him down to the floor. Joey Styles is excited because this is the first offensive maneuver he's seen from Mikey Whipwreck, although it was on Jason, not his actual opponent. He screams that we have seen history tonight in the ECW arena. Rebel clotheslines him over the top rope to the floor. Big chair shot on Whipwreck's back. Back in the ring, Rebel holding Whipwreck so Jason can hit him with a chair. Mikey ducks, and Jason hits his own man with the chair. The Rebel is down. Mikey beats up Jason. Rebel back up with a chair. Double team by Rebel and Jason. The Tasmaniac comes in to make the save for Mikey Whipwreck. Surprised by the non-reaction for any of this from the fans. Like, they... yeah. Or Whipwreck got a few got a few chance, but yeah, we were still the the love for Mikey Whipwreck was still was still to come with this. No, character. and the Tasmaniac doing a save run in here also didn't get a big reaction. I don't know if they were just a little exhausted after the Funks match and saving yeah, a little something so. for the next match. But uh, you know this this it, match was put in the death spot. If anything, I mean it's ECW Arena. The fans are rabid, but yeah, you're in between. The Funks versus Public Enemy with that crazy spectacle that we saw at the end. And then a first-time match uh, in the main event between, you know, uh, the the biggest up-and-coming uh, sort of hardcore crazy guy. And then, you know, a big star that everyone knew was insane. So, yeah, I think it just, it just died to death in this spot. The Pitbulls come out and they start fighting with the Tasmaniac. Rebel and the Pitbulls destroy Taz as we fade to a graphic telling us the main event, Sabu, with Pauly Dangerously and his handler, 911, versus Cactus Jack. I was hyped when I... the randomizer pulled this match, and or pulled this show. I looked and saw the main event for this, and I I had forgotten, and then we, we find out as the match starts, I had forgotten at this point I just hadn't thought about it in a while that, you know, Cactus Jack was still in WCW. Uh, I shouldn't have forgotten about it because I was, I had just seen Cactus Jack in WCW teaming with Max Payne against the Nasty Boys at Spring Stampede 94. 
like a month earlier, a month and a half earlier than this. Cactus Jack at this point had already given notice that he was going to be leaving WCW when his contract was up. So he was going to work independently, just working indie shows, which at the time was a very big risk for someone who was making good money in WCW like Cactus Jack was. So Yeah. He would he would end up sort of applying his trade between working indies, ECW, and then going over uh, and becoming a, a deathmatch icon of sorts uh, in, in Japan. So Sabu comes out in chains, 911 leading him out to the ring. Yes, like dragging him. Like he Sabu is literally, we're, we're not exaggerating here, wrapped in in just just chain after chain after chain, long, long links of chain dragged to the ring. And I had forgotten that this was part of Sabu's gimmick at the time. When he first came into ECW, they would roll him out on like a like a vertical rolling cart and he would be muzzled like Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, like he's he would, such a he, wild man. He can't. Uh, yes. He, he, so cool. I, this was awesome. Like he's literally rolling around the ring trying to get out of these chains as 911 is is holding him back uh, in the corner. And then we get a great in ring introduction by Paulie for Sabu. All... Calls him the suicidal, homicidal, genocidal cactus slayer. This is a battle of the crazy men. This should be awesome. I'm so excited. And a first time match, by the way, a first time interpromotional match as it's billed. Cactus Jack has an injured shoulder coming to this match, a legit injured shoulder. So he's he's selling that right away. Just coming it's into obvious. The ring. Like you watch the before Joey says anything, you're like, oh wow, why is Cactus Jack's left arm just hanging there? And then they tell us. Sabu starts the match with three kicks to the head of Cactus. That's the yeah, that's three, the start of the match. Three leaping enzigiris are literally the beginning of this match. They're the first three things that happen. Sabu knocks Cactus to the outside, teases a dive, but Cactus sees it coming and runs away. I love that. Leaps into the crowd briefly, <laughs> jumps over the guardrail. Sabu grabs a chair from the front row and starts hitting Cactus in the injured arm. Yeah. Sabu sits Cactus on the chair outside. So Cactus is sitting in the chair outside. Paulie comes over to hold him in the chair. So Cactus is sitting there as Sabu from inside the ring dives between the top and middle rope, wiping out Cactus with a tackle. This was more brutal looking than it sounds. Uh, it was absolutely, absolutely brutal. And, and Cactus Jack ends up hurting his back legit. And I don't know if if this was one of the... There's one of 10 spots where he could have injured yeah. his back. This is definitely one of them. Yes, this was... This was fantastic. Visually impressive. Like you said, I, I it took me a second to realize what was going on with, because uh, again, we just had the hard camera shot and this was on the opposite side. Uh, but Paul holding him there, uh, as you said, Sabu goes through, it's sort of a cannonball suicide dive, just this wild 100 miles an hour suicide dive. And the only thing in the ECW arena that's moving faster than Sabu at this point is uh, Polly dangerously getting out of the way right before <laughs> Sabu crushes uh Crushes Cactus Jack. This was great. Back in the ring, Sabu leaps off a chair in the middle of the ring and kicks Cactus in the corner. Sabu tries it again, but Cactus with a back elbow knocks Sabu out of the air. This was great. And I also like this is one of Sabu's uh, uh, signature spots for many years. I guess you could almost say that it's 
you know, the Hardys ripped it off later. And instead of a chair, Matt would, would lie down on the mat and Jeff would jump off of his back. And I believe they called it the poetry in motion. This was Sabu doing it just with a chair and killing a guy. And then you had Jack with the back elbow the second time. And then he goes on the offense, raking at Sabu's face. He hits the classic Cactus Jack clothesline over the top rope, left arm with his dangly bad arm. Uh, they both go over the top rope. Uh, and Cactus grabs a chair. He hits hits Sabu in the back, hits him in the head, and then we get. I'm sure one of the one of the ten spots that could have injured uh, Cactus's back or his hip or his tailbone or all of them. Uh, the Cactus Jack flying elbow drop off the apron to the floor. Which, no mats, by the way, as if we need to point this out in the was, ECW. I was arena. about to remind everyone that there's no mats around the ring in the ECW arena, so that's right on the floor. Someone at ringside gives Cactus a frying pan, and he hits Sabu with it. And then he hits was himself one of the, in the head repeatedly with it. One of the great things about the ECW arena back then was that it wasn't just chairs that fans would, would bring and give. There would be uh, there'd be legit stop signs. Uh, you would have frying pans, all different sorts of things. Yeah, Cactus hitting himself in the head over and over. You could tell that Cactus Jack was so fired up, even here, pretty injured. Uh, to be in this sort of environment, uh, wrestling, fighting Sabu. Cactus misses a flip off the top. He lands right on his back. Yeah, I did not expect this. I <laughs> This was like your reaction to Sandman doing his slingshot somersault. The fact that he does it every time, but you're still shocked. That's how I was here with Cactus. Him actually never doing this. Uh, yikes. Sabu nails a slingshot leg drop. Like right to the throat. Yeah. Sabu and Cactus are both on the top. Cactus goes for a belly-to-back suplex, but Sabu turns in the air, lands on Cactus. Both men tumble to the outside again. Toward the entrance walkway, Sabu backdrops Cactus over the guardrail. Sabu then sets up a table, puts Cactus on top. He jumps off the guardrail with a leg drop, putting Cactus through the table. And this is all in the entranceway still, which I don't recall seeing too many times in ECW where tables were set up and utilized in the actual uh, sort of entranceway. So that was different. Still on the outside, Sabu runs at Cactus, who catches him in in like a hot shot, clotheslining him across the barricade. They... They clear out the first few rows on the other side of the barricade. Like, like push people get out of the way. They clear nine one one is getting people out of the way, and they He's directing traffic. Yeah, they set up a table in the seating area where the people were just at behind. Yeah, on the, the table is on the barricade. other side of the guardrail instead of where it normally would be in between the guardrail and the ring. So this this table is is in with the paying customers. Nine one one puts cactus on the table. As Sabu jumps to the middle rope and does a moonsault over the guardrail onto Cactus through the table. This feeling of chaos and craziness around ringside was absolutely unique to ECW. 100%. Yeah, I I agree 100%. I had written something very similar. I know we talked about just before recording this as we sort of debriefed that this match, that moment... Everything about this, this was the the real chaos and danger that ECW projected 
this is the first time in any of the three shows that we've been doing this podcast, uh, any of the ECW shows we've covered, where this really, really felt that way. And even though my, my first live ECW experience was some four years later, this captured as I'm watching this, it, it took me back to being at an ECW show and that feeling of like four huge men brawling toward you, bleeding all over the place. And you realizing like, okay, this isn't like the other wrestling shows I've been to where they're going to try to not hit into me as they're brawling. It's like, I need to get out of the way or I might get hurt. Yes. <laughs> and like that feeling of danger, that, that excitement that, like you said, that is at least at that time, particularly that was completely unique to ECW and that, that adrenaline rush, particularly live, you could not get that from anywhere else. And once you experience it once as a fan, you would be chasing that for like the rest of your, your live wrestling fandom. Back in the ring, Cactus has a piece of the broken table, nails Sabu with it. Sabu falls back into the corner. Paulie's on the apron. Cactus nails Sabu with a clothesline in the corner, and that's when Paulie hits Cactus in the back of the head with a cell phone. Cactus falls backward. Sabu falls on top of him. We get the three count. Sabu is your winner. 911 holds Cactus after the match as Paul E hits Cactus repeatedly with the phone. Paul E actually tries to do a running clothesline, but Cactus moves and Paul E comically bounces off of 911. <laughs> yes. At uh, this point, we get what Joey Siles says is the most violent chair shot he's ever seen. And here in 1994, I am hard pressed to disagree. Cactus Jack hits 911 in the head hard with a chair but it's not just a chair shot he has the chair open open and he he's swinging down like holding the chair from like the the chair back with it open and just absolutely crushes 911's head here this was this, it's disturbing so, it sounded so brutal on this vhs yes how many times dubbed copy that we saw here streaming this definitely on the was this definitely wasn't the master tape, by the way, because at no. one point we see the like VHS like play graphic pop up on the yep. screen. There's tracking issues. This is like, yeah, th this is something you would get off a tape trading site. This is they, they did not have access to the master video clearly. No, and and the crowd was going absolutely insane because I could only imagine what it sounded like inside oh. the arena. They were going nuts for it. That was absolutely brutal. Douglas and Mister Hughes come out. The Bruise Brothers come out to attack them. Sabu ends up diving over the top onto the pile outside. Yeah, another double jump off the off a chair onto the top rope and sort of a half dive, half somersault onto the entire uh, onto the entire pile. We then have Cactus Jack and Sabu brawl all the way into the other corner of the building onto what Joey Styles says is a concession stand. At which point. Cactus Jack pile drives Sabu through the concession stand. This was uh, crazy. This was absolutely oh. nuts. And, and the people were going uh, going ballistic for this craziness over in the corner with Cactus pile driving Sabu through something. They're through well, the it concession was also stand. Like, the visual here of only having the one camera shot, it almost made it more dramatic because like they're on top of something. Cactus Jack pile drive Sabu, and then they just disappear. disappear. <laughs> yeah. And like you're wondering, did they just go through the earth? Like, are they still going down? And then we don't see them. Uh, we can't tell what's going on. They they emerge. Uh, this was not the the hole in the ring no, like Taz and Bam Bam Bigelow. 
They emerge. They go back to ringside, at which point Sabu grabs a glass bottle and shatters it over Cactus Jack's head. This bottle explodes all over the ring. And insane. 911 puts a table in the ring, but the way he does it, pushing it over the top rope, the flat part is facing the ropes, and the folded up legs are facing the wrestlers. And Cactus gets thrown into that side of the table, breaking it. Ugh. Sabu then does a top rope moonsault onto Cactus, who's laying on the pile of broken table. Cactus gets up, throws the broken table over his head onto Sabu. And he really has to muscle him for this. This isn't like Sabu doing the table suplex to Sandman, or maybe it was vice versa in the too extreme for pay-per-view cane match. <laughs> uh, this was, again, the, the table's broken in half, so he's muscling up the first half of the table, and then, like, the, the second half of the table is just hanging on. He somehow is still able to muscle it up and basically suplexes it onto Sabu. This is completely insane. Total and utter chaos and bedlam. Everything that ECW should be and was at its best. And Super then, Super and fun. then we go to the back for promos and oh my god this this promo jeremy from cactus jack might be my new favorite promo i've seen in the history of professional wrestling this was both content and delivery one of the most incredible things i've ever seen in pro wrestling i can't believe i've never seen this promo and i was i was not expecting to to be blown away as this promo starts but Cactus has his WCW World Tag Team title belt with him. He was tag champs with Kevin Sullivan at the time. He did not bring it out for the match, but he had it backstage here. He spits on it and throws it down because he can't be happy about being a champion because he lost his match. And he also lost the title of most suicidal, ugliest wrestler and Jack, and Jack Kevorkian's, Kevorkian's favorite, favorite wrestler. wrestler the, the famous suicide assisting doctor there. Yes. Uh, he says he will eliminate the competition. Sabu, you're better he than He says me. this in, in like, and again, neither of us are Cactus well, Jack. I'm not so going to do it. We can't do this justice. But that may be the strongest case yet on this podcast of us not being able to do justice to what someone says or does. No, go him watch here talking about how he has he has three choices: either to concede, to find a way to outdo Sabu, or the third path, which is eliminate the competition. But just the way he says this, and this the 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 anger, but the shakiness in his voice. There was never a better promo guy when it came to changing the timber and the sound of his voice to uh, to just make you think he was even crazier than he was and just terrify you more than Cactus Jack. And this is like a, a tour de force of that type of promo from him here. He's mad that Paulie didn't call him. Uh, he's coming back to ECW. He wanted Paulie to call him because he, he, wanted, to, uh, he wanted to help take down WCW and, and he's mad, so he's coming back to ECW. I love a classic Crazy Cactus Jack promo. This is one of the best I've ever seen. It was great. Cactus, like I mentioned, has a legit back injury coming out of this match, and WCW management was legit not happy with this promo, especially the spitting on the belt part. Yes, he's, he spits on the belt. He throws it down. He talks about having a contract in Atlanta, but that doesn't mean anything. He has a great line where he uh, 
He says he has nothing, something along the lines of he has nothing against Sabu other than that Sabu is a little bit better than him. Then he says, but how will you be better than me when you're missing a foot, you don't have a tongue, or you aren't just missing half an ear? And at this point, Cactus pulls up his hair to reveal the half ear. Uh, it says, but you won't just be missing half an ear, but the whole ball of wax. Incredible. Go watch this promo, everyone. Treat yourself to amazing Cactus Jack. We get a Paul E. interview after this. He hasn't seen a human enjoy taking pain like Cactus did. No one took everything that Sabu has like Cactus did. Sabu's not here to win a title. He's here to take out Jack and help Paulie take out the entire WCW. An awesome promo to end the show. Back to back, great, great promos. The yeah, Paul says he's obsessed with the demise of the office at the CNN Center. <laughs> like I love it too because the whole idea going back to the Dangerous Alliance, which was you know two and a half, two years prior to this, the whole story with that was that Paul E had gotten like the, in character and storyline had gotten fired from his announcer's gig in WCW, and he came back with the Dangerous Alliance to destroy WCW. So the fact that he's here in ECW two years later after legit being fired from WCW and his goal still while in ECW uh, in storyline is that he wants to kill WCW. It just it, it makes for a, just an even more unhinged poly dangerously and just a sort of a great uh, tying up loose end story. Best match for you on the show. It's a two match uh, race here. Oh, it's it's cactus and and. and Sabu. I mean, watching it here in 2020 as we record this and then thinking back to, again, reading in the magazines, people talking about this match and how this was, I mean, Sabu was the guy that everyone just couldn't believe how crazy he was and people were were so interested in seeing what insane thing he was going to do next. And then, you know, Cactus Jack's reputation preceded itself. So to see that match and then just like you said, to see just the the wild chaotic insanity that ensued yeah i i would have to go with that absolutely for the spectacle alone it was the best thing on the show but i did love the funks and public yes. enemy match too that, that was also great. very similar in a lot of ways uh you know with the you know the the a lot of the matches in ecw at this time period too like you watch the show and you realize that the matches or the finishes were completely secondary to whatever crazy moment or moments were going to happen after the matches ended. And once you, once you kind of get into that vibe as you're watching this show, the finishes or lack thereof really, at least to me, they really didn't bother me. Worst match for me was the rock and rebel and Mikey Whipwreck. I don't know about you. Oh yeah. I would say, yeah. Cause dreamer and hack Myers was fine as an opener. Fine. I, it didn't bother me at all. I mean, the Chad Austin, Donnie Allen thing that wasn't even count. a match. Yeah. Yeah. I would say kind of by default, it's that I, I well, you know what? I'm actually going to say Bruce brothers versus Shane Douglas and Mr. Hughes. Oh God. Because that, that match, too. that match had 1994 Shane Douglas in it. And it still sucked. Like whereas this match was Mikey Whipwreck in 1994 and rock and rebel. It shouldn't have been good. And it wasn't. You're but right. You it know, further it further the Mikey Whipwreck story. So you're right. I, I, you know, in re 
talking about that match, I uh, <laughs> forgot how mad I was about how horrible the Harris brothers were. Yeah, you're right. That I think that is actually the worst match. Uh, there you go. Finally, me. it took months, but I think I've actually changed your opinion. You, you've convinced on a, me. On a worst I, match. I forgot. I, yes, I have in my notes. Literally, like we're all losers for watching that match. That sucks. Yes. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> but overall, a fun show. It's fun to see ECW in that time period. Highly recommend uh, for at least those two matches and most definitely the promos at the end for, for sure. So I I, I would agree. Must must watch recommend it. it, It's, you know, we're two months, a month, whatever it is before Shane Douglas is going to throw the NWA world heavyweight championship in the garbage at an Eastern championship wrestling show and, and declare that belt dead, declare the ECW championship, a world title and declare it extreme championship wrestling. So this is, we're right on the edge, right on the precipice of, of ECW really exploding into what it would be. So it's it's fun to see this. And it's it's definitely a good sampler of what ECW in its its grittiest, uh, most lo-fi mode really felt like. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, interact with us on Twitter at Wrestle at Random. And make sure you rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever podcasts are found and make sure you tell your wrestling fan friends about us we rely on your word of mouth to spread the word to everyone even your your friends who aren't wrestling fans anymore but maybe did enjoy it back in the day go ahead and have them take a trip down memory lane with us continue to spread the word we've been just blown away by by the uh, positive comments and, uh, and and the support we've gotten so far. So please uh, continue that. We rely on it, and we, we appreciate every single one. Absolutely. Could not agree more. And I'll just, I'll just close out by saying I am really happy we finally got, via the randomizer, a show that felt like authentic ECW from the ECW arena. We kind of tr- are triangulating on that 95, 96, early 97 time period that was the best of ECW. So I, I have hopes that at some point in the not cosmically distant future, uh, we'll get one of those shows too. And with that, we're going to wrap it up. I want to thank everyone for listening. Thank you too, Adam. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeremy. And we'll talk to you again next time.